Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible with you, you can open to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll look at verses 3 through 14. The text is also printed in the next page of the bulletin for you. We just started a new series recently on uh, the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus about the church, his uh, theological and practical considerations of what it means to be the church. And so uh, we're starting off, this, is, this will be our final week kind of looking at uh, this section, these, this one long sentence in uh, the original language of over 200 words, but uh, what, what is a couple of paragraphs for us in most English translations. Um, we're, we've done a few overviews of that, and then next week we're going to start taking this in smaller chunks and actually uh, digging in a little bit more <clears throat> uh, in smaller, smaller pieces. So um, Marilyn Robinson is an author, probably a lot of you have heard of her book Gilead, if not read it. Uh, It's a pretty great book. She's written a lot of stuff. She's written a a few books just full of essays. One of those books is called The Death of Adam. And in that she says, great theology is always a kind of giant and intricate poetry, like epic or saga. Great theology is like giant, intricate poetry. Right? And so you will find no greater theology anywhere else than here in Ephesians 1, in this passage that we're looking at. You'll find no greater theology. Um, this is high poetry. This is ebullient, kind of bubbling over, doxological thought about God. And that word doxological, doxology, right? We sang that a little bit earlier. Uh, that basically boils down to a couple Greek words that were mashed together. Glory words, right? Doxology means glory words. And that's what this is, right? Uh, for Paul, theology... Uh, Thinking about God is captivating, wonderful, and it results in doxology. It results in glory words. It results in it spills forth in praise to God. And our theology, our thinking about God, is stunted if it's not that. It's stunted if it doesn't result in praise, if if it's not doxological. So that's what we're going to look at this morning, actually, praise as a result of uh, knowing God. Uh, So let me pray. And then we'll read the passage. <clears throat> Father, we pray that you would help us uh, because we need your help as we consider your word, especially this. This passage is great, and um, it is beyond even the greatest minds that have applied themselves to it throughout the history of the church, and it is certainly beyond, um, beyond us to know all the ins and outs uh, all the goodness, all the wonder, all the beauty and glories of theology are, as are presented here at the beginning of Paul's letter. We pray that you would help us uh, to be able to perceive your love for us here. We, we pray that you would help us to respond to it rightly with praise and adoration of you. We pray that you would overcome any obstacle that exists in our hearts uh, by your Holy Spirit to receiving your word and being changed by it into the likeness of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, 
which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So last week, we looked at this text and we saw the great structure of it, the great Trinitarian structure. It's the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, this one God in three persons that Paul is celebrating. We looked at that last week, and this week, um, we're looking at the repeated refrain that we see actually applied to each one of those persons. In verse 6, 12, and 14, you see the refrain either identical or uh, something similar to to the praise of his glory, right? to the praise of his glory. This is who he is. This is what he's done for us, to the praise of his glory. Right? And um, so God is this good and loving father. God is this selfless son who shares his inheritance with us, his own relationship with God as his father with us. God is this spirit of love and unity uh, who is freely given to us for the assurance of our personal intimate union with God, our relationship with God. Right? So God being this God and having done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves in setting his love upon us, taking the initiative in our relationship in the Son of God coming into the world to live for us and to die for us and to rise from the dead for us, in the love of God being poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us, all of this, um, it not only does result in praise, it should it should result in praise. It was, it's meant to result in praise. It's supposed to. When we think about who God is and what he's done for us, it is supposed to result in praise. If you hear about God, the triune God, if you hear about Jesus Christ, and it doesn't result in your, your praising his glory, then something's off. Right? Something's broken. Something's wrong. And uh, praise is a huge theme. It's a refrain of salvation. If you look at this... Uh, this long section in, in Paul's letter uh, as, as like a song, as a celebration of who God is and what he's done for us in Christ, then the refrain is this, to the praise of his glory. Right? That's the refrain. Our salvation is supposed to culminate in praise of God. Not that praise is entirely synonymous with singing. Right? That's what we usually think. That's what we have in our minds. That's part of what we do when we come here on Sunday mornings. We, we sing songs to God. Not that it's entirely synonymous or, or only uh, is constituted by singing, but if you think about the book of Revelation, something that may not be familiar to many of us, you look at that book and it's like, that's confusing, I'm not sure what's going on, you do get clear glimpses of what heaven is like right now or in the future. Uh, in God's presence, you get these scenes in heaven of Worshippers who are singing and they're falling down before God, right? And that's the result of God being who he is and doing what he's done in in history and in our lives to uh, bring us to a relationship with himself. Now, I completely understand how from a certain perspective that sounds 
really unappealing, right? Um, Off-putting. Oh, great. An eternity of servile fawning over a self-centered God, a God who had to create us so that he could get worshipers for himself because he's so selfish, uh, he would create people who would just serve him. What a lovely picture of the afterlife you got yourself there. No thanks, you know. I can understand how uh, that perspective. I became a Christian in college, and before that, being a good atheist, I held that view. I held that perspective, right? I shared that perspective. What kind of God creates people or saves people just so that they'll praise him in heaven forever? What kind of God does that? The assumption is, well, it's a pretty selfish, self-absorbed one, right? Narcissistic. Um, what kind of mindless goons are content to just sing praise songs forever, <laughs> right? Uh, what happens when, oh, say, 100 million years into it, everybody's just bored and wants to do something else? Uh, it doesn't sound like a great option for eternity. I can understand that. It doesn't sound actually like a great explanation for reality, right? This is supposed to describe the, the reason we were made. And everything going on in the world and in our lives is supposed to culminate in praise. It doesn't make any sense. Because after all, isn't that what Christians say? The chief end of man is to glorify God. Right? The chief end, the highest purpose, the reason you were made is to glorify God. This world, everything in it, we ourselves. For the purpose of praising God, really just this interminable singing to a self-absorbed deity. Is that what we're all about? Right? Um, Praising God is something at least so foreign to my regular experience. It's at least foreign, if not actually distasteful, something that I wouldn't do if I could choose, right? But it's at least so foreign, so alien, so irrelevant to this world and to the relationships and to my life. Praising God, it just doesn't seem to connect with reality in any way. It's just a stretch for me to think that my chief end, my highest purpose, the reason I was made is to glorify God, to, to praise his glory forever, right? It just doesn't really connect to my everyday life. Uh, and when I look around, especially at all the hypocritical Christians uh, saying sappy things, like, oh, I just praise God today for this luxury or that luxury, and they seem like they're living in a dream world, right? or uh, in church, singing with abandon with the lights low and the music loud, so we can basically kind of drown out so we can't see the brokenness of the world or hear the brokenness of the world around us. But we're supposed to sing praises, just happy songs all the time, right? It doesn't seem to connect with reality. It can be a bit sickening. I get it. I'm, I'm with you. Uh, we all need our, our thinking to be reshaped, right? We all need our thinking sorted out when it comes to praising God what it means, who this God is, what it means that we were created for that purpose of praising his glory, what that's supposed to look like, and how that actually reflects reality, how it connects with everything in the world and all of our relationships and in our lives, how it, it actually reflects reality rather than kind of standing out against it, sticking out like a sore thumb um, in the middle of you know, what we obviously see is really real. Right? Praising God seems so foreign we need our thinking reshaped about that, and uh, the scriptures do that for us. What's critical for us all to understand is, again, who we're dealing with, who we are actually dealing with when we talk about God, right? The God who created us for praise, the God that we're meant to praise in a relationship of delight that will exist forever between us and God. Which God are we talking about? And hopefully by this point in the service on Trinity Sunday, 
you've kind of gotten a clue, right? We're talking about when Paul does theology, just thinking about God, right? Uh, thinking about him according to the truth that he's given us about himself in the scriptures. And when he writes about God, like he's doing here in, in uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he's not just writing about any old generic God, some God of our imagination, some God that it's easy for us to comprehend and get our minds around. He's actually talking about the triune God, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. It's kind of mind-blowing, but that's who Paul's talking about. The triune God is a God of love. Because he is one God in three persons, he's a God that John says in his letter, he's a God who is love. A God whose essence is beautiful, everlasting, mutual giving and receiving in relationship. Right? That's who God is. Beautiful, everlasting, mutual giving and receiving. Before God created, before anything else was but, but God alone, uh, there was father-loving spirit, uh, father-loving son, father giving himself to son in the spirit, son loving and giving himself to his father in the spirit. There's relationships. Before anything else was created, before God made anything, there's relationship, there's self-giving, mutual giving and receiving. From all eternity, God has not been a self-centered, kind of monolithic, narcissistic being. That does not define who God is. Right? The being of God is other-oriented dynamic love, Father, Son, and Spirit. Right? He's not a God who needs anyone to glorify him, to praise him. Right? He doesn't need to create people just so that he will hear the sound of worship. Right? He is intrinsically glorious in, in his love, and each person praises the others infinitely and truly. The son praises the father better than we will ever praise the father. So he didn't need to make us in order to give him praise. Right? So we cannot think God made us just to pump up his ego. Right? That's just not the kind of God that he is. In fact, God is himself a praising God. A God who praises. And he made us in his image to do what he does. Right? God is a God who praises he reveals this to us clearly in Jesus Christ. We see it in the baptism. We, we talk about this a lot when we talk about the Trinity, that the baptism of Jesus Christ is the first place in the scriptures where you really encounter the full significance of who this God is in three persons. He's not just one God, monopersonal. He's one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. You see that in the baptism where the Father lavishes praise upon his Son as he pours his Spirit out upon him, as the Spirit descends on Jesus Christ like a dove, right? And he says, the father says, this is the son of my love in whom I am delighted. He's praising his son. That's what kind of God he is. He's a praising God. This is the son of my love in whom I am delighted. Of course, the father expresses his love to the son. He's done that throughout all eternity. He's expressing his love directly to the son. But at the baptism of Jesus Christ, he's addressing us. He says, this is, not you are. He says, this is my beloved son. At the baptism of Christ, he's addressing us. He's sharing his exuberance about the son with others. His love for the son of his love finds its culmination in his praise. Right? The father praises the son. And that resonates with us, I think. 
that resonates with us, praising. It really does resonate. There's this quote uh, by C.S. Lewis that I put at the, actually the beginning of the bulletin for you on the, the front cover from his little book, uh, Reflections on the Psalms. He says that the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy, because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. And so that really does describe reality as we experience it regularly, doesn't it? Praise does describe it. The world rings with praise. We love things, we give expression to our love, and that love, that enjoyment, finds its culmination in when we we laud the objects of our love and when we try to enfold others into the enjoyment, right? When we try to get others to appreciate what we appreciate. That's what praise is. For example, several of you know me to be sort of an evangelist for a certain style of running, right? Um, Thank you, you're laughing. A lot of you apparently know me to be an evangelist for a certain style of running, a particular type of uh, running shoe or lack thereof. I wear running sandals, right? Three years ago, I read the book Born to Run. Great book. Highly recommend it. Everybody should read it. I got the running sandals. I read another book, uh, Barefoot Running Step by Step, to relearn how to run. And within a couple months, I went from being unable to run a mile without pain uh, to doing a half marathon, 13 miles, right? And it's been great ever since. And uh, if you ask me about running, you're going to get the whole spiel, right? If you ask me about running, you're going to get the whole personal testimony and all the benefits, right? All the benefits that I've noticed. I love the thing. I enjoy the thing. I laud the thing. I talk about it. And I seek to enfold you into my enjoyment to get you to share my joy about that thing, or at least to imagine it. I want you to experience what I've experienced so that we can be excited about it together. That's praise. That's how the world works. That's something significant about reality. We praise all the time. Parents share their excitement about their kids. That's how they express their love and affection for and enjoyment and delight in their children. Parents share their excitement about their kids. Kids share their excitement about Butterflies and video games, right? Um, Friends share their excitement about movies. Even if we can't find the words to appropriately and thoroughly express how awesome we think something really is, even if we can't find the words, we just try to grunt it out. That's awesome! (laughs) You know? 
We do that. The best praise is probably when we sing, when it's deliberate and when it's beautiful and when words aren't quite enough when we sing. Uh, So praise does describe something essential, essential about reality, about the world that we live in and about how we live in it. And the Christian knows from the scriptures that this was deliberate on God's part because this is the kind of God that he is. He's the God who does this. The father loves his son, and his love finds its, its deepest expression and its culmination in praising his own son. He's a God of love. He's a God who praises, and he is at the heart of reality. He's the reality from which all reality comes. And the Christian also knows from the scriptures that our love and our praise is broken and deflated. Right? Um, we love the wrong things, or we love certain things too much, good things, but we love them too much. So our praise is the culmination of a distorted connection to reality. Really, running and running shoes is probably not worth all the praise that I give it. <laughs> but I do it anyway. Uh, Our praise is the culmination of a distorted connection to reality. We we revel. We get excited about it as a culture. Some of lots of us as individuals, we get excited about portrayals of destructive power and vengeance. You can think of movies, right? Portrayals. You could think of sports. Destructive power. Uh, We revel in portrayals of that. We fixate on trivial things and we boast about silly things. We substitute all sorts of other things for God in our lives, uh, children, money, romantic interests. We substitute these things for God and we pour love into them and we heap praises on them. Uh, They're probably worth some of that. They're probably not worth all of our hearts. We refuse to turn our hearts to the one true God to praise him because there's something wrong with us. There's something wrong with our hearts, something wrong with our eyes and our ears, that we don't behold him as he truly is. We're blind to his glory. He's got a glory that's worth praising. And we were built for that. We don't do it. We're blind to his glory. And that's why we need him to come and save us. We need him to come to save us from our distorted connection to reality and save us from our own hearts and loves, to save us from a false view of what kind of God he really is, give us a true view of himself, to save us for true love, for true praise that fills up our lives forever because it's oriented around him. And that's what Paul is celebrating so vibrantly and richly in this passage a true, beautiful, good, theological vision of the triune God who saves us. It's true, and it's good, and it's beautiful. The Father chose us. He graced us with his glorious grace, it says. The Son bought us back from disintegration and death with his own life. And the Spirit is given to unite us to God in the full assurance of his love. And this is like what Paul is... uh, saying here, this is like the old Exodus. Remember the book of Exodus? Israel being delivered out of Egypt and the miracles that accompanied that. Right? 
It's like that, only better. Um, Sam read in the Old Testament reading earlier this morning, Isaiah 43, Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. So he's talking about the, the, when, the, when the Red Sea was parted. Right? Moses held out his staff, the Red Sea was parted, God miraculously delivered Israel through that water, and then the waters came rushing back in and wiped out Egyptian, uh, the Egyptian army. Right? Um, you've all seen the movie, or the cartoon. <clears throat> but uh, He's the one who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they're extinguished, quenched like a wick. He says, remember not the former things... Nor consider the things of old. So this old exodus. It's it's nothing compared to what I'm doing now. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me. The jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness. Rivers in the desert. To give drink to my chosen people. The people whom I formed for myself. That they might declare my praise. So this is talking not about God's chosen people of Israel, but God's chosen people from the wilderness. The wild beasts. That's us. That's Gentiles. Uh, Not Israel, Gentiles. That's who God is going to deal with. Um, And that's a huge theme in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, that he has grace not just for his original chosen people, but for people that cover the whole world. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Every ethnicity, every kind of person, even people like you, he's bringing you in, he's chosen you, he's set his love on you, he's saving you, he has grace even for people like us. His grace is so vast, so wonderful, he's bringing all kinds of people together in Christ, drunks and prostitutes and condescending rich people. He's bringing all kinds of people together. In fact, he's reordering and restoring all things, the text says, all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth. John Owen was an old Puritan in England. I had a book called The Glory of Christ. He says that the Lord Christ is glorious in that the whole breach made on the glory of God in the creation by the entrance of sin, the whole breach is repaired. In Jesus Christ, he's fixing everything. Right? The glory of Jesus Christ is the glory of a God of love, the glory of a God of union who moves out in a fragmented, broken, distorted, desperate world. He moves out into that world to restore it to true unity around the person of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what kind of God he is. That's what kind of savior we have. And so Eugene Peterson, I think I quoted this last week, said that Jesus, the Messiah, is eternally and tirelessly bringing everything and everyone together. The energy of reconciliation is the dynamo at the heart of the universe. So he's bringing all things back into proper relationship with God. And as we're drawn into that, we have our love restored to center on him as it was meant to do. And uh, and we find our love's fullest expression, the culmination of our love in praise, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace. And now as we delight in God, according to his revelation of himself, as we delight in true thoughts about him, how he really is, all of our interactions are increasingly brought into the light of his love, and we begin to praise him, we begin to fulfill our chief end, the purpose for which we were made in all of our lives. We begin to praise God.
And um, so Gregory of Nazianzus, old, uh, like 300s, 400s AD, uh, Greek um, Orthodox theologian, said this, This I give to you to share and to defend all your life, the one Godhead in power found in the three in unity. No sooner do I conceive of the one, the one God, than I am illumined by the splendor of the three, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. And when I think of any one of the three, I think of him as the whole, and my eyes are filled, and the greater part of what I am thinking escapes me. I cannot grasp the greatness of that one so as to attribute a greater greatness to the rest when I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch and cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. This is just a beatific vision that this guy is trying to communicate, trying to praise this God who is one God in three persons, right? The God who's revealed himself to us for our relationship with him. And John Calvin said that the eloquence, both of men and angels, after being strained to the utmost, falls immeasurably below the vastness of this subject. Right? Try as we might throughout eternity. We will never give full expression to the praise of his glorious grace um, that he deserves. So do you now see how absolutely relevant this theological vision is to all of life? Do you see how relevant it is to all of life? I'm keenly aware that I'm seen like a strange duck because I get so excited about theology, right? <laughs> Particularly Trinitarian theology, I get really excited about it, and you're like, that guy's weird, Right? It's, it's so essentially relevant to all of life because we were made to glorify this God. This God, the God who praises, made us in his image because it's delightful and he wanted to share what it's like to be a praising God, to be a praising uh, a person praising other, you know, that, that other-oriented love that culminates in praise. He wanted to share that, and so he made you in his image to be able to share that you were made to glorify this God and enjoy him forever in everything that you do throughout all of your life. Not, not just coming to church on Sunday and wishing that the few songs that we sing would extend out into eternity. You were made for more than just singing. You were made to live your entire life glorifying God, praising him in everything that you do. And that's a beautiful vision that we have. Even though our lives are broken... We still see that praise imbues everything, right? The world rings with praise. We still see that. That's an essential feature of this reality. His praise should imbue everything. His praise should imbue everything. We're all living for something. We're all praising something. You need to ask yourself. You always need to ask yourself, is what I'm living for, is what I'm praising, is it really worth it? Is it worth being the God of the universe in my heart? You need to ask yourself if it's worth it, and you need to tell yourself that the triune God who saves us, he's actually worth it. He's worth being the center of the universe. He's worth your love. He's worth your love culminating in praise in everything that you do. I'm not just talking about solitary daydreaming about God, right? That's great. really is. Sitting there getting lost in the beatific vision and just having a heart welling with the praise of God. But praising God is something that you share with others. Just like the Father shares it, shares his praise of the Son with others. It's something that we're meant to share with others. The New Testament, especially Paul's letter to the Ephesians, reminds us that we have a shared salvation, 
It's a relational salvation. It's a shared spirituality. And therefore, we have a shared praise. And this can be as regular a practice as singing the doxology together, glory words, right? Praise God. But it, it should extend naturally and organically beyond the Sunday morning worship hour uh, into all of our relationships and our endeavors. Because evangelism, really in a sense, after all, is just praising the triune God who saves while you're around other people who don't yet know him personally. That's what evangelism is, praising God around others who don't, don't yet know him. Uh, enjoying his goodness visibly and audibly and sharing your life-giving connection, your enthusiasm about Jesus Christ and about this God, trying to enfold others into that cosmic joy. Because it is cosmic joy. It's an infinite joy. It's an eternal joy that we have a taste of now, that we will drink our fill of forever in his presence in the new heavens and the new earth when God has finally made all things new and united all things in praise around the true center of the, the cosmos, Jesus Christ. I'll close with the words of Paul from Romans 11. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy